eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You walk around with like a booger on your nose if you blow a save because everyone's looking at you. They don't have to say anything. It's like throwing a bad interception. Yes, they all know, and it's like you should have won that game, and you are really the essence of what that feels like. Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is first ballot Hall of Famer and baseball's top TV analyst, John Smoltz. Presented by Geico. In early 2019, today's guest played in several Legends golf tournaments for the first time. He would play more, but he also was working as a lead analyst for MLB Network and MLB on Fox. Before becoming a broadcaster, he was a Hall of Fame pitcher for 21 years. And if you go way back to his childhood, which we will here today, he was an award-winning accordion player. It's my pleasure to welcome John Smoltz. Good to see you, man. <laughs> Thank you, man. So you were playing the accordion back when you were about four years old. That's right. Who would have thought that that would prepare me for money, life, challenges, and <laughs> uh, endeavors? Well, you you grew up in uh, the suburbs of Detroit, right? right? So you're a big Detroit fan yeah. and everything else. Uh, so I'm thinking this has got to be like a German background or something. Well, my mom is full-blooded Italian. My dad is more German, Czechoslovakian, and they both were accordion teachers, and they both were accordion players. So here I am introduced at the age of four to the accordion that I don't know anything about <laughs> and thrust in these competitions all the way to the age of seven. I guess your second love, obviously, was baseball. Yeah, it came out of nowhere, actually. Uh, I just watched it on TV. Uh, picked up a rubber ball that back then the rubber ball that you would throw and it would come back as a rubber ball yes. unlike what you have today and I just started emulating everybody I saw on TV and I remember telling my mom you know what I was I knew what I was going to be when I grew up at the age of eight if I had to guess they were thinking this will pass he'll return back to music well, well, it didn't pass and no. good thing it didn't pass and obviously you grew up a Tigers fan growing up a Tiger fan of course, listening to Ernie Harwell and emulating everybody and anybody that wore a Tiger uniform. I was going to say Ernie Harwell, you know, one of the great broadcasters, and yeah. you turned out to be a pretty good broadcaster yourself, if I might add. Uh, what kind of impact would you say he had on your 
development? Yeah, that's a great question because I never thought that this is what I would do when I was mm -hmm. done playing. But he painted a picture. Um, I remember just listening to him, and you could feel like you were there, whether they're on the West Coast or the East Coast. I did turn off the TV volume and turn on the radio mm -hmm. and watch the game, but listen to him because he was such a he had such a gift at being able to really navigate you through the game. Your Detroit background, did you initially start as a pitcher or were you a more, a more of a fielder? Yeah, I played every position but catcher. I really I loved the, the pitching aspect of knowing that you are going to start the game and you're going to make action happen by the fact that you deliver a ball. And uh, I really tried to emulate every pitcher that I saw. I never taken a lesson, never went to camp. They didn't have much of that back then. And really self-taught. And... Uh, I never will forget the brick wall that I threw against, which was no wider than this table. And I put a strike zone and I put four quadrants of tape. And it was just me, that brick wall in my imagination and a screen door that I would hit too many times <laughs> that my mom would yell at saying that if I don't get control of that ball that I had to find a different venue. When did you know that you actually could take it to another level? Like when did that hit you? I think my junior year. You know, I was the smallest kid on every team I played on. Uh, I had a really big growth spurt between my junior, right around my junior year, grew about seven inches. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me a little confidence, but the ability to throw a baseball was something that came natural. I was very loose jointed. It came out of my hand free. And uh, I just tried to be as athletic as I could. Back in 1987, Atlanta scout John Hageman told manager Bobby Cox that Detroit would never trade then double-A prospect John Smoltz, who he predicted was destined to become an all-star, win 20 games, and earn the Cy Young Award. More than 200 victories, 150 saves, and 3,000 strikeouts later, it sure looks like that scout knew what he was talking about. I mean, you get drafted by your hometown team. Yeah. The Detroit Tigers. I'm imagining your family is like just stoked and they're so happy about all of this. And then you get traded to the Atlanta Braves. What was that moment like? Yeah, so the backstory, real quick, I went to that World Series game and people in Detroit, my dad showed me what people were going to do when a World Series comes to your town. He showed me everything outside the stadium, but people were tearing up the infield for whatever reason and throwing sod in the stands. My brother and I went and got about four of these big plots of sod and we planted it in their backyard. We put a Tiger statue, you know, about this big over it, signifying this was Tiger's infield. This is their World Series turf. Well, fast forward, I get drafted, and I'm, I'm excited, and then I get traded. When I come home that, that offseason, the statue's gone, and the grass has been pulled up. <laughs> That's how much it meant to our family on what I thought was going to be a dream come true, play in the home state and see everybody could, make, could see me play. I never realized that TBS would be the greatest gift that ever given to my family because my parents could see every game I ever pitched. And boy, they did see a lot of great games too, by the way. And uh, you know, you and Tom Glavin kind of arrive on the scene at the same right. time and you're, you're pitching for Bobby Cox. Leo Mazzoni is your pitching coach. I mean, it's legendary stuff. 14 division titles. It's like the New England Patriots of today's NFL. Uh, nobody could overtake you in your division. And the competition amongst you and Glavin yeah. at the beginning, what was that like? It was awesome. You know, here I'm a newcomer, and they were kind of homegrown, and I had seen the talent in the minor leagues, and the team in the big leagues was losing 100 games. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't know if we'll ever win here. You know, first couple years, we lost 100, then we just barely lost under 100 the third year. And you could see that the talent was coming, the Steve Averys, the Pete Smiths, all the pitching that they, that Bobby had acquired as GM, 
he's now getting a benefit as a manager. We never talked about the inner competition, but we thrived off of it. In other words, we all knew that we would be responsible for turning this organization around if we, there was a chance to turn it around. It, it was almost as if we, as pitchers, decided that if we could one-up each other, that that would be a good thing. If you threw, you know, if you gave two runs in nine innings, then it was my job indirectly to give up one run in nine innings. Then they add Greg Maddox to this whole thing, right. and you guys become the big three. And I'm just thinking that this has got to be like a life's dream. You're out there. You get a chance to do your thing. You're watching two other guys that are just like off the charts good and then you have this manager you have this pitching coach yeah. and you have this great organization that now is just knows nothing but winning well that's why for me I never wanted to leave you know I became a free agent three different times uh, but I signed back because of my manager I can't speak enough about what Bobby meant to my career single-handedly changed the destiny of my career because in 1991 I was two and eleven and there's not a lot of managers that would have stuck with a 2-11 first-half pitcher, and he did. In that second half, I went basically the last 14 or so games without losing and pitched those three significant games. Without his belief in me, I would have been in the bullpen. Today's time, I'm, you never hear of my name. Right. And so that was a big part of it. Tell me about uh, the 1991 World Series uh, with Jack Morris and what that was like. Yeah, it was everything that I dreamed of. And as a kid in that brick wall, I did it. I dreamed about every game seven you can imagine. So when I fast track into that two and 11 first half, second half pitched 12 and two, I pitched the nine inning clinching game to go in the postseason. Then the nine inning game seven on the road against Pittsburgh to get to the World Series. And I'm getting a chance to do my third one it was everything that I dreamt and felt when I went into the loudest stadium in all of sports at that time, the Metrodome. It was oh, yeah. so loud. I, the, you know, for a pitcher, you walk out to the mound in pregame, and that's your moment of that time of everything that's going on to kind of focus on what you're about to do. Fans are going crazy. You step on the bullpen mound, and I remember the pitching coach, Leo Mazzoni, goes, you know, are you okay? Are you ready for this? And then there's a little six or seven year old girl sang the national anthem that night. I said, if she can do that, I can do this. But I never <laughs> felt nervous. I never felt out of body. I felt like I was right where I wanted to be. I always envisioned keeping the loud crowd to a dull roar because if they got loud, that meant the inning was getting out of a hand, the run was scoring. I only wish I had as many years as Jack had to be right. able to tell my manager go back to the dugout uh, right. in the eighth inning but it, it, it lived up to everything that I I was never afraid and I was never afraid to fail and the moment was never big enough to cause me to do that that's what I love I love the fact that you're never afraid to fail and you say that often yes and you're not afraid to try new things also right. to reinvent yourself what you've done here um, I'm just trying to think that now, now let's fast forward to the 1995 World Series mm -hmm. and what that whole experience is like for you guys finally being able to crown yourselves. There was so much pressure on us going into that, um, what we hadn't done and how many times we had been there. Kind of like the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, and that's unfortunately what we were being. I never understood the Buffalo Bills conversation. I didn't. As a player, as a fan, I thought that was an unbelievable accomplishment. But unfortunately, it's what have you done for me lately, and if you didn't win the big game, people are going to start questioning it. So we were getting in that conversation. Mm -hmm. It weighs on you. You don't overtly talk about it, but you realize that how many chances are we going to have? 1995 became our hardest journey because they added the wild card. We had to play the scariest wild card <laughs> team at the time, the Colorado Rockies. We were technically beat. They had us beat, but our experience kind of went through 
that, and we were able to beat them. We beat so a really good. It's close. Very close. And the thing about that is that that maybe actually propelled you all the way to the to the victory ultimately at the end of the at the end of that run. Because then we beat a great Cincinnati Reds offensive team. We shut up. We won four games to none. And we beat probably the best offensive team that we ever saw in my playing career, the Cleveland Indians and all their Hall of Famers that were soon to be. Going through that and winning a one to nothing game in an epic game that yep. Glavin pitched, the weight of the world was relieved and we were able to celebrate and obviously thought we would go on and continue to win many more. And mm. in 1996, of course, that's the one I can't <laughs> let go, and that's the one that but, ultimately but, came but, back. But I always tell you know, the other team gets paid, too. You yes. know, they got some pretty good players as yes. well. You know, I, I just think about your career and the, the career arc that you had going from starting pitcher, which is everything in the world, mm -hmm. now to becoming the closer. Yeah. And I, you've often said that you thought closing was harder than starting. No doubt. And why is that? There's, well, for a guy in my personality and what I love, I love structure, I love knowing what I'm going to do each and every day. I love to know the routine every five days you're going to pitch, and you pour all your energy in for that game, and you try to go nine, and then you recycle that whole four-day in between to get ready for it. So I like structure. I like knowing that. But when you get to something that is different, you fly by the seat of your pants. There's no structure. There's no rhyme or reason when you could be in, when you train, when do you eat, when do you – that was so – uh, unnerving for me that I had to learn on the job. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I would have felt like actually throwing left-handed might have been easier than throwing <laughs> right-handed because yeah. unless you're primed and positioned in that, yeah. you've, you have an adrenaline rush that's unmatched. So you do that over and over. That's an adrenaline rush that happened 78 times that year for me, whereas 34, 35 controlled adrenaline rush there's nothing that, that can simulate that as a starter. I, like I would I think that you have a much better perspective than anybody out there of the difficulties of both things yes. and how hard it can be to close and how we as fans watch the game and kind of just take it for granted that a guy's got to go out there and get three outs. Right. But, and, and, and it's not as simple as what people will tell you when they're pushing numbers to say three outs in the seventh is the same in the ninth. It's not. And the reason it's not is when you're conditioned to do something with room for error later, meaning you can come back. You blow something in the seventh, mm. your team can come back and hide that. You blow something in the ninth, you don't, it's over. It's and on so you. It's on you. So <laughs> yes. to get the last three outs every single time takes a special person, takes a memory loss that you need to have when you've blown one of those. And I tell people all the time, I've lost a lot of games in the big leagues. It never compared to a blown save. Well, because you lost somebody else's game. Yes. And you lost your team's game. And that's the way you got to think. Game time will continue right after these messages. All right, back with John Smoltz, Hall of Famer, and one of my favorite broadcasters, by the way, and, and certainly didn't like you as a pitcher because you always <laughs> beat my Mets. I just want to ask you, you know, all you guys have songs coming into games yeah. when you're closing or you're batting. What was your song? You know, this is the funniest thing that could ever happen. When it first birthed on the scene, they came to me in spring training. Yeah. They said, when you come out the door, we need a song for you. I said, I don't want to. I don't, I'm not thinking about a song. <laughs> You think I care about a song when I'm trying to get three outs in a one-run game? Play whatever you want. So the season goes on. I don't pay attention to a song until one day there was a mistake. I come out of the doors in a tight game, and Dancing Queen is playing over the speakers. <laughs> I get to the mound. The on-deck circle guy's laughing. Yeah. I cover my face, and all of a sudden I'm thinking about a song, and I don't want that to be the case. So after the game, they rush down. They apologize. They said, we, were, we made a mistake, we hit the wrong. I said, no, you made your point indirectly, I'll get a song. Thunderstruck was born after that. 
I owe it to Dancing Queen. Oh, there you go, Dancing Queen. Well, I would say Dancing Queen doesn't fit. But anyway, <laughs> so 2009, you know, I'm thinking, like, you get drafted by Detroit. It would have been great to have your whole career spent in your hometown and all right. that. You get traded to Atlanta. You spend your entire career there. You go through changing from starter to yeah. closer to back to starter, the whole thing. And you end up going to the Red Sox and the Cardinals. Yeah. Any regret doing that? No. The only thing, and I tried really hard to work it out with Atlanta, and I know why they didn't really want it to work. At that time, Glavin and I were going to compete for one spot in spring training. We're both coming back from injury. As an athlete, I wanted to, to be able to at least get back on the field and then walk away. Uh, this surgery that was basically my undoing and the nine anchors that sit in my shoulder now, I felt like in my mind if the doctor after surgery gave me a 10% chance, mm. I would pursue it. He did. I pursued it. As it played out, the ending was as good as it could have been for me as a Cardinal, mm. even if it it meant not being a brave because the way that I was able to finish my career and pitch the way I thought I could gave me a lot of peace to walk away. And as I stated over and over again, yeah, I would have loved to work it out with Atlanta. Uh, the, 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 the cards were not there for that to work out. Boston gave me an unbelievable opportunity. I wasn't good at all mm. with Boston. Uh, I found out I was tipping my pitches. Oh, you were? Yeah, which didn't help. Oh, you know, I want to ask you about tipping pitches. And, 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 and individually, St. Louis, in one side session, after two weeks of being released, they picked me up for their playoff run to put me in the pen, which I was all for because they were going to win their division. They had a really good ball club then. In my first side session, I asked them, give me a start or two just to get reacclimated with myself. The first bullpen, they said, I know every pitch you're throwing. Chris Carpenter asked me if I he, he could say something. I said, absolutely. He goes, you're tipping every one of your pitches. I went, oh, oh that's been going on for a while. Right. In that very first game I pitched against the San Diego Padres, I struck out seven in a row. I won that game. I pitched really well for the Cardinals. They ultimately lost to the Dodgers. I finished my uh, career coming out of the pen. had no saliva. I couldn't even... I couldn't believe how nervous I was. I walked from the pen to the mound in game three, and I, I realized my career was basically, this is the capsule of it. And the feeling I had, and I had to step back and go, you've done this. This is my 15th postseason you know, scenario. You've done this. Relax. I struck out four in a row, or maybe five in a row, and had a chance for my sixth. And I'll, I hung up. I remember it like it was yesterday. I hung a breaking ball. I gave up a run. I walked off after giving up one run in two innings. And, uh, you know, I it. realized that that was probably it. When he was growing up in Michigan, Smoltz thought golf was too stupid to play. He picked up the game while he was in the minors and, of course, fell in love. He has now realized a dream by playing in PGA Legends tournaments around the country. Golf, he says, is the closest thing to the anticipation of getting ready to pitch a game. And I know you love golf, yes. and I know you guys had these epic uh, golf outings between you, Glavin, and Maddox. You guys are legendary. You yeah. guys, I don't know if you know your reputation out there yeah, on all the golf courses, especially when you come here to New York. Yeah. Yeah, John Smoltz wants to get on the golf course for free. That's what I keep hearing. <laughs> no, you know, I created a, 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 the black book of all my members, all my contacts, and you meet the one guy who introduced you to the 14 who introduced you to it. Was That's it. That's no, golf, it was right? absolutely phenomenal. I set it up. I got the rent-a-cars. I told the guys I created a venue. Make a decision what you want to do after the game or play golf. I'm playing golf. If you, don't, if you say you're going to play mm -hmm. and you don't show, there's a fine. Because I go through great lengths to make these things happen. Right. All three of us tell the story that it extended our career. It was one of the greatest things that we could do to make our sport, which was the number one importance to us, right. performing, 
a way to get away from the game that consumes you and will eat you alive. And a camaraderie, too, oh, that, that is both on the golf yeah. course that only truly golfers can understand. Yeah. But you've gotten, you've taken it to a whole nother level. I mean, to be able to go out there and compete at that level, that takes a lot of time, patience, and practice. Yeah. And obviously determination, which you have. Yeah, the biggest thing for me, it goes back to baseball. I'm not afraid to fail, and I failed miserably under the biggest moments that mm -hmm. teach me how to become a better player and a better golfer. And unless those moments happen, I don't think I would have ever been in the spot to at least attempt. I had this desire. My teammates were tired of talking about it. It started when I was young and picked up this game that I didn't like and didn't respect mm -hmm. and didn't understand. And I said, you give me an opportunity to play with the pros, and I'll rise to the occasion. At the time, I was a 10 handicap. This tournament in, in, in West Palm Beach comes up called the Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Ken Green, Kalkovecki, and Trevino asked myself, Glavin, and, and Avery to play in this tournament. We pair, paired up with each other. And I was never thinking that would ever happen. I shoot two under wow. as a 10 handicap. It's front page. None of my teammates the next day were – they all put earmuffs on. They never wanted to talk to me. <laughs> and I came in saying, I told you so. But my desire was to play till I couldn't play no more in baseball, spend 10 years to practice, and to attempt to try to play on the champ, what's now known as Champions right. Tour. And uh, I wanted to qualify for something. Luckily, I did. The U.S. Open last year was not a great result, but a great experience. Yep. That's what I like to hear. That's great. All right, thanks for John Spoles for joining us today. As you just heard, he's a heck of a golfer. And thanks to you for watching out there. I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again soon right here on Game Time with another Hall of Famer, Jeff Bagwell.